We started a series last year called The Unforced Rhythms of Grace, and we did a bunch of stuff, which I'll go over in a second, but I promised we were coming back to it and that it was going to be a good bit longer, and so we're getting back to it, and we're going to be in this for a little while, certainly up to and perhaps past Easter. Are you tired? Well, we're on the right subject matter. I wasn't. I'm liking this. That's good. I'm normally a bit disappointed with people's responses, but that was excellent. Are you tired? Yes. <laughs> Worn out? Yes. Burned out on religion? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Come to me, says Jesus, because don't come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. These words of Jesus, as translated by Eugene Peterson, are so profound. They offer us a hope in the midst of our tiredness and our weariness. Not as a program of things to do, more programs, more things to do, another, another mindfulness idea, another this, that, or the other, a class you can go to, or something else you can pile on top. And not only are you tired and weary, but now you're trying to hold on to all this other stuff too, and then guess what happens? It all falls on the floor with you underneath it, and you're done in. And for so many of us, religion can be like that. Our faith can be like that. Where we just start adding things in and we go, well, a bit more of this and a bit more of that, and we're done. Wasted. And what we're trying to say with this series is that Jesus has another way. Another way. A way that if we walk with him, there is light and easy. Away with him that is unforced. Away with him that has rhythm. And I like the sound of that. I don't know about you. What do you think? <laughs> I'm going home. Does that sound good? Does that sound like the kind of thing we might want? It's the kind of thing that might be an antidote to how we, our modern world just pushes in on us all the time. And we looked at a, a number of different subjects the last time, and we said that there were going to be three sections to this series. The first was being with Jesus, learning to be with Jesus, some things we can do, some practices, some ideas of ways that we can be with Jesus. Then we were going to look at what it meant to become like Jesus, because as we become like him, we embrace all that he has. 
And then finally, we were going to talk about doing the things that Jesus does, that we end up living in a way of life that is unforced, that is filled with rhythm and filled with rest. We looked at silence and solitude. We looked at what, why community matters for us. We looked at why Sabbath is really important. And I, I can't tell, I tell you enough how much that subject keeps coming back. I was with some pastors yesterday. Main topic of conversation, what does Sabbath look like? Not just for us, but for our people. In the midst of the craziness and the busyness of our world, what does it look like to Sabbath well, to rest well? We talked about prayer. Lewis helped us think about fasting. We're not quite done with the being with Jesus ones yet. We today are going to look at Eucharist. Is that a word people are familiar with? Strange word. It's what many of our more liturgical brothers and sisters would call communion or the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. I think I've run out of names for it now. Breaking of bread. Spot the brethren boy in the corner. Um, I love the word Eucharist. One, because I like words, right? I've, I, I like words. Like, words are good. They, they express things. My wife gets grumpy with me occasionally. I mean, just she gets grumpy with me because I deserve it mostly. But um, she gets grumpy with me for using big words. She's like, Glenn, don't use big words. People don't know what they mean. I'm always like, but big words mean things. We can learn stuff and get better and know stuff. And she just shakes her head. Doctors, eh? Oh. Eucharist, though, is a beautiful word. It means thanksgiving. It comes from the Greek. It means thanksgiving. Which for me begins to shift everything about this table. Right? To call it a place of thanksgiving begins to shift the perspective of what we're doing. It's not a place of misery and sadness and solemnity, though it can include that. It is primarily a place of thanksgiving. And so we are going to look today at a practice of the Eucharist. And this begins Lent for us. And we are going to take communion every Sunday during Lent. So we will have communion every Sunday for the next six weeks. Um, because it's worth celebrating. We typically do it once a month, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no nothing evil about it. But we're, over the next six weeks, we're going to slow down, and we're going to take communion. And that might mean that we, uh, we last a little longer than normal, or it might mean we ditch something we normally do in order to have more time for it. And we're going to try different things. So we're, each week, we'll have a different person leading communion for us, and uh, they will bring their own perspective to it. And sometimes you're going to like it, and you know what? Sometimes you won't like it. And you're just going to have to put up with that. Because that's what it means to be community. So let's read together. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're in Luke chapter 22. We're going to read uh, from verse uh, 7, I think. 
Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They replied. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. Remember that phrase, just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, just a little side note here. Uh, The Passover it's referring to is from the Old Testament. When the Jews were released uh, from captivity uh, in Egypt, uh, there was the final judgment was the killing of the firstborn son. And the Jews uh, put the blood of a lamb over the lintel of their houses and the angel of death passed over them and their children were saved. That was the final judgment before uh, the people of Israel were allowed free from Egypt or where they fled, where God led them out of Egypt. And so God established that every year they would remember that story by retelling the whole story of the people of Israel with a Paschal meal, for a Passover meal. And each year they continue to do that. So there is still every year at Passover, the Jews will get together and they do a a big long meal and it involves all sorts of things. They eat bitter herbs so that they remember their tears in the wilderness. They eat a stuff that's a bit like horseradish, which reminds them of the cement that they use to make bricks. Uh, and, and the, the bread and then they hide bread and look for it and there's a cup of wine that they put on the side for Elijah waiting for him to come and they leave the door open and it's an amazing family meal because the kids all get involved and they all run about looking for things it's a big celebration and it's this that Jesus has asked them to prepare for it's this meal the biggest meal in the Jewish calendar where they're remembering God's deliverance and they've done it since they were kids And they'd been involved since they were kids and they know the story. And now I've lost my place. Verse 15. That's helpful. Thank you. Somebody was paying attention. Uh, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. The Word of God. I have a few observations I want to make about Eucharist and the rhythm and why it's a helpful thing for us to do as often as possible. The first is because it's ordinary. 
this image, oh, does everybody know what it is? City Centre, Edinburgh City Centre, the castle. It's a bit blasé for us, right? If you live here, it's like, meh. Seen it a thousand times, you walk out of Waverley Station, you probably don't even look up to see the castle anymore, right? You just go and you go about your business because it's just there. It's bog standard and ordinary. People spend their life savings to come and see that. It's astonishing, but it's incredibly ordinary to us. And in the Middle Ages, theologians gathered to figure out what was going on at communion here, at Eucharist. At the Lord's table, at the breaking of bread. And in the early church, they just basically said, Jesus is present, because he said he would be. But they looked at it and said, well, there's got to be something else here. We must be able to explain this properly. And so they said, it can't possibly just be bread, because bread's just ordinary. And so they began to develop a theology that became what's called, and you don't need to remember this, so just ignore the word as soon as I've used it, called transubstantiation. And no, I couldn't spell it. Um, And what they meant by that was that the bread became something else entirely, and that the wine became something else entirely. It changed its substance. Because for them, ordinary bread wasn't holy enough. Ordinary wine wasn't holy enough. There needed to be something more sacred. But they were so very, very wrong. Because you see, ordinary is exactly the stuff that God has always worked with. Just ordinary stuff, bread and wine. This is the church calendar. We don't follow the church calendar particularly here. I do it surreptitiously. We do bits and pieces. But if you were in one of our uh, more liturgical churches, then they would follow the church calendar. So it begins with the season of Advent, and then we get Christmas, and then they enter a little slice of ordinary time, and then this this time, which is Lent, and then Tridum, and then Easter, and then back into ordinary time. What do you notice? We've got all these big high festivals like Advent and Lent and Christmas and Pentecost and Easter and all these wonderful times of the year, but they make up a fraction of the whole year. What is most of the year called in the church calendar? Because you are ordinary. That's this morning's really good news. You are ordinary. You see, some of us, and I'm including myself here, we think of ourselves the same way that those Middle Ages theologians thought of the bread. I'm just too ordinary for God to do something with. He needs to change the very substance of who I am. I have to become something else. Not at all. We are not too ordinary or too normal to be a sign of Jesus to the world. It's exactly what God has always used. So the Eucharist, the rhythm of the Eucharist matters because it reminds us that 
ordinary is exactly the kind of stuff that God has always been using. And if we had time, we could go through the whole Passover story and discover it was ordinary people, ordinary things that God used to do extraordinary things. The other reason is the remembrance part. So we've just spoken about it. The purpose of the Passover meal in the first place was a remembrance of the story of how God had been faithful and would surely continue to be faithful and bring to fruition the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah that the Jews were awaiting. It functions the same way for us. This is why Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We're telling the story. So we should be telling the Old Testament story. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. That's part of our heritage. We come from that. So yes, God led the people of Israel up out of Egypt. Yes, he carried them over the Jordan or through the Jordan into the promised land. Yes, he led them into exile and returned them to exile. But our story doesn't stop there. Our story says that God himself became human and moved into the neighborhood. The Messiah that the Jews were looking for is Jesus. And he says, I'm going to take on me all of the things that were required to be done. And here's a meal that would allow you to remember that. So Eucharist becomes about this retelling of our story. It's why it's important we do it regularly. Because we remind ourselves of the good news. We remind ourselves of who it is we belong to. We remind ourselves of how faithful God has been. And sometimes we'll tell different parts of the story. And sometimes we'll tell personal stories. But we're always telling the story of Jesus and how he is at work in us and in the world. Third reason. Because this is about thanksgiving. We should be a people of joy. can't even whip it up, can we? (laughs) We are so inscrutably Scottish. Even when we're encouraged to be joyful, it's hard work. We should be filled with joy. Filled with joy. God has done good things. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Have you experienced that? (laughs) So so we should rejoice and be glad. Hear me, I am not saying that life is not difficult and life isn't challenging and that, you know, there aren't really awful things happening in the world and in our lives. That is true. And yet, our deepest conviction is that God has set us free in Jesus. That nothing in all of creation, not height, nor depth, nor angel, or demon, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is the most amazing news. That even death has been defeated. So the one thing that you would think that should steal our joy, it's been crushed by Jesus 
And the only thing that death for us leads to is a life eternally with God. That is good news. And so we should be a thankful people. Now, I, I, pastorally, I must say, I know that means that we, just because death has been defeated, you know, as a church, we have walked through death recently. Our dear brother died, Dan, and, and we grieve still, of course. But we rejoice that he is with God. So we're not stupid, right? Like, like, being joyful isn't about being an idiot and pretending like there's nothing bad in the world. But it's saying, you know what? Even in the midst of this, I know that my God reigns. And so we come to a table of thanksgiving. This is our posture of gratitude, of thankfulness, of joyfulness. There, uh, there's a, uh, a biblical scholar, a guy called Walter Brueggemann, and uh, he writes this. He says, the church is the only community in the world that has as its central symbolic act an act that is called thanks. The Eucharist. You know Eucharist is Greek for thanks. And participation in the Eucharist is an act of gratitude for the abundance that the Creator God gives to the world. As we wonder what it is like to learn these unforced rhythms of grace, to have a place of rest, do you know one of the things the world is telling us we should be that helps with all of that? We should be grateful and thankful. I'm like, we were there first. This is our story. So we need to remember Thanksgiving, really important. But we don't end there because we do bring our stuff. Because this isn't just a place where we think, oh, well, you know, we're thankful and we recognize all that Jesus has done and we're joyful. But we also, as we recognize who God is and what Jesus has done, we, we come to a place where we recognize what we are not. It's an old-fashioned term now, but we're sinners. We're, we're broken. And the good news is that in repentance, we can come to God and sort ourselves out. And it's, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, I'm going to read this for us, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, he writes this, So then, whoever takes the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Those are heavy words. But they're good words because they invite us to repentance. They don't just say there's a problem, you've got it, good luck. They say there's brokenness here. There's brokenness in relationship. There's brokenness in the way that you behave towards others. There's brokenness in your relationship with God. And God says, turn to me and it will be fine. Because repentance is a word of movement, right? It's not some, it's a word of turning, 
Now, I want to be clear. I think those verses in 1 Corinthians 11 are actually referring to the relationships between the people in the church. Paul has been talking about how the rich have and the poor have not. And so it's actually not concerned with personal sin, that language. So I want to be really clear about that because I don't think you should ever choose not to take communion. Because I think you're saying God's grace is not big enough for you. What I think Paul's driving at here is you must not be in the situation that that we say, for example, I like the people here, so we're going to have nice communion with the good bread and the lovely port. That's what we're having. And those folks over there, well, yeah. I suppose there's a little bit of juice and whatever crumbs we've got left, they can have it. That's almost exactly what was going on in the Corinthian church. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Because when we come to this table, we are all equal before God. There is none of us that is somehow better than the other. We all come to the table as weak and broken. And Jesus offers us life. That's our hope at this table. And so, yes, our own personal sin should be dealt with. And we should consider a moment of repentance. And we will when we come to take communion today. But Paul in this passage is particularly talking about relationships between one another. But that's a challenge too. If you've got something against your brother or sister, go sort it out before you come to the table. I love that. Paul's, not, Paul's real, right? He knows Christians are going to fall out. That's actually not that big a problem. The issue is, what are you going to do about it? Are you just going to leave it there to fester and kind of ignore it and bury your head it and sweep it under the carpet until you start tripping over it? Or will you just go and say, listen, I know I got I wronged you. Would you forgive me? And if somebody comes to you and says that, the bad news is you don't really have a choice here. There's no going, no, nah, don't forgive you. Your choice is... Because Christ has forgiven me, I will forgive you. That's how we live. That's what repentance means. So, it's ordinary. It's a table of remembrance. Place of thanksgiving. Place of repentance. My hobby horse. Who's ever heard the words, the body of Christ broken for you? We need a response here. Okay. Strong. I would like those words never to come out of your mouth again. I genuinely believe it's one of the worst things that happens in an evangelical church. And it will happen in evangelical churches up and down this land today. And it's sloppy and it's wrong. And now I'm going to tell you why. Let's look closely back at our text again. Luke chapter 22. I'm going to read just verse 19. And he, that's Jesus of course, took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. There's our broken word, okay? So we've got broken bread. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Every other text in the New Testament 
doesn't use the word broken. Not the 1 Corinthians passage, not the Matthew passage, and not the Mark passage. None of them. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because if Jesus is giving his body, he's in control. If his body is being broken, it's got nothing to do with him, being done to him. Why does that matter? Because it's a crucial point of the story. Jesus is in control of the whole scenario. There's nothing happening that's out with his father's will. He knows who will betray him. He knows what's happening. He is the one, remember I said, remember this little phrase? He's the one who set up the fact that they were going to go there and eat the Passover. Like, I mean, if I said to you, I tell you what, go, go down the road, chap that boy's door, and upstairs there'll be a room, and you'll, like you go, lunatic. But Jesus knew what was going to be there. He was in control. He was setting the pace and the timing of everything that was going to happen. He chose to enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He chose to turn over the tables. He chose all of this. He was in control. And if we're going to talk about his body being broken, we're taking something away. There's another reason we shouldn't talk about his body being broken, which is that Scripture explicitly says that his body wasn't broken which seems like a good enough reason for me, regardless of my first point. John chapter 19 says this, verse 33 to 36. Uh, the soldiers, uh, sorry, from 32. The, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus. Now, the reason they did this is because when you were on a cross, the, tip, you, you didn't die because of the, the holes in your hands or your arms typically. You, you basically asphyxiated because you couldn't breathe. You couldn't get any air into your lungs. And so people on the cross would push themselves up by their legs to keep air going in because they couldn't hold themselves up, right? If that sounds brutal, that's exactly what it's supposed to be. And so they would come and they would break their legs so they could no longer push themselves up and breathe. I've lost my place again. <laughs> but when they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Skip down to verse 36. These things happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. Jesus' body explicitly wasn't broken. It's prophesied in Numbers and in Leviticus. We should rejoice that Jesus' body wasn't broken for us because it says he chose. And he chose you and I. He chose his Father's will not something happening to him, not passively just letting this awful thing happen. Instead, he chose. He chose. And that changes everything. Because Jesus was in control. So no more broken. We good with that? So what's going to happen over the next five weeks as people come up here to lead communion? They're all going to be petrified. You're all going to be sitting there going, is he going to say broken? Is he going to say broken? Or is she going to say broken? We are also filled with grace. If anyone makes the mistake, that's okay. We will point it out to them afterwards. Final one. 
presence. This is where people, us evangelicals, can sometimes get a bit nervous. Because part of that whole, remember the transubstantiation word, part of that was an effort to explain how it is that Jesus is present here. And the Catholic Church took that and that became their root. And our brothers and sisters in the Anglican Episcopalian type movement, they took something that's kind of like a half and half job in the middle. And the Lutherans, they went a slightly different road. Because everyone was trying to explain what everyone agreed. Everyone agrees that somehow Jesus is present here. That there's something particular about Eucharist that Jesus is present in. And so the transubstantiation guys, they go, he's in the bread and in the wine. The the other guys, they go, yeah, he's just kind of here. If I'm honest, I don't understand their one. It's a little bit of a cheat, and I can't quite get my head around it. But they basically just go, he's here. And then you get other people who say, yeah, no, there's nothing special about this at all. But even the people who say there's nothing special about this at all still believe that Jesus is somehow present here. Our choice is what we want to do. Do we want to try and explain it down to the nth degree so that I can say that Jesus is in this crumb here? Or or actually, is there something else we can see that's helpful in this regard? And I think there is. We say that it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Now again, us evangelicals, we're not that good with mystery. We like to explain stuff. It must be in the Bible. We have to be able to understand it. When you know the problem is, there's loads of stuff we don't understand. And the great thing about mystery is it invites us to a place of humility. Where we have to go, this is true, but I don't know how. God is here, but I can't explain it. It's a good thing. It means you're not God. It's a humble place to be. But what is 100% clear is that we should expect to meet Jesus in Eucharist. Mystery, says Eugene Peterson, is not the lack of meaning. It's simply that there's more meaning than we can comprehend. I love that. There's so much going on here. There's so, it's so complex that in reality, we can't explain it too much for us. And so we rely on mystery, not as a lazy thing, not as a, oh, I can't think about that, but as a, this is just too much. And so we trust that Jesus is here. So, Not because he's here because there's something unusually mysterious going on. He's here because there's something ordinarily mysterious going on. It's very ordinary and yet unbelievably mysterious. So as we are a people who want to walk in these unforced rhythms of grace, as we want to be with Jesus, let us remember the rhythm of Eucharist, taking this meal together. It's ordinary. 
It's a place of remembrance. It's a place of thanksgiving. It's a place of repentance. It's a place where Jesus chose us. It's a place of his presence. He is very definitely with us. I struggled all week quite what I should do with my conclusion. And then I realized, I don't need a conclusion, do I? We actually just take Eucharist. We take bread and juice. But I decided we would do it a little differently today because I thought that might be interesting for us. And because it, partly because it will walk us through some of the things that we've just talked about. We are going to use the Anglican liturgy for communion this morning. It involves you saying words that will appear on the screen as I nod to these guys, hopefully at the right time when they're supposed to come up. So I will point and hopefully then they will appear. We will see. I feel very nervous doing this, to be honest. If my friend Jim, who's an Anglican priest, finds out I did this, he's going to laugh at me for months. But there's something beautiful about this. It comes from the Book of Common Prayer. It's centuries old. The church has followed this for four or five hundred years. And we get to participate today. And it's worth us remembering that we do so with billions around the world today. There are about two billion Christians in the world, many of whom, perhaps even most of whom, will do the same thing today. They will take a simple form of bread, whatever it is they have in their particular part of the world, and they will take a liquid. Some will take wine, some will take port. I remember talking to a guy who was in and they used orange juice. I'm still not entirely clear why, but I think because it was, a, it was a, a, a treat to them, that it was something that they didn't get very often, and so they used orange juice. And if you talk to others who have been on mission around the world, other places use other things, because it's ordinary stuff where God shows up and is present with us in an extraordinary way.